Districting maps. The U.S. Supreme Court turned away Republicans' request to halt congressional district maps today. This was GOP state leaders' last-ditch effort to stop the new maps from taking effect. Lawmakers passed a second set of maps last month after their first set were rejected. And happy Saturday, and welcome to The Deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. It is Saturday, March, 20, uh, March 12th, uh, 2022. Uh, and uh, we're back here again to uh, try to uh, make sense of the news. And there's plenty going on, as you saw in the lead-in. Um, the uh, Supreme Court has denied a request by some Republicans in North Carolina to review maps that were recently approved for uh, redistricting. And uh, well, let's just start there. And, uh, and I got back with me this week, uh, our two favorite uh, folks, uh, Dr. Nicole McFarlane from Fayetteville State and Val Atkinson from, uh, formerly from North Carolina Central University, uh, now with uh, Foxy 107-104 Connections. I'm going to start with you uh, today, Val. Um, uh, so the Supreme Court gave an outright denial. They're not going to uh, do any further review of the maps. Uh, just your quick assessment of why they may have decided not to review. And then also, Again, what does this mean uh, in terms of uh, the uh, upcoming um, midterm elections? Well, first of all, I, I concur with the popular thought that it's too close to the election uh, to make changes again without it having a deleterious effect on the election itself. So uh, agree with the Supreme Court in the case of North Carolina in particular, get it said and done with and let's have this election. Now, what does it mean uh, in this Congress that we're in right now, the 117th Congress, uh, Republicans have a uh, eight to five advantage uh, over Democrats in terms of uh, congressional house seats uh, because we have 13 districts. Of course, we are to gain a district yeah, through redistricting. And it's anticipated that the way the lines are drawn now, that Democrats have a good chance of holding on to uh, districts one, two, four, uh, six, and 12, which they have now, uh, and also have a good shot at uh, taking districts 13 and the new 14. That, that would give uh, uh, Democrats and Republicans they even shared seven districts each if it happened that way. We'll have to see based on voter turnout, based on the success of voter suppression and those kinds of things as to how that all works. But it, it appears uh, that the Supreme Court of North Carolina looked at that and basically said, this is a fair map, what I, what I saw and the Supreme Court of the United States agree with them that it's more fair than what the Republicans have drawn in the beginning. So let's now see what happens when uh, Republicans don't get their way. Yeah, Dr. McFarland, I got a different question for you, but it's still about the midterms. And, and, and so you got these maps, they're set now, no more arguing about that. But the problem still going to be is getting people to, to the polls to vote in the midterms. Uh, and, and we know all the other pressures that are going on for the Democrats and whether or not those seats turn out to be 
you know, uh, evenly split between Democrats and Republicans, especially here in North Carolina, is left to be seen. But uh, just in general, we've talked about this before. How do you get people to uh, decide that they're going to vote in the first place? You know, you again around a lot of young people uh, being on college campuses. Uh, talk to me about their desire to vote and participate, or just people in general that you talk to about whether or not they're going to show up. Um, voter motivation, um, voter energy um, from a lot of younger people. Um, a lot of people who aren't hardcore, um, you know, electoral, you know, voters who just turn out for everything. Are, there's, a, there's no energy there. Um, I, I believe the Democrats just, some of the Democratic, um, some canvassers have been, some, there are some groups that have been canvassing for the Democratic Party for um, this week and it just started this week and they're calling um, and they're starting to ask, um, trying to recruit uh, volunteers. And from some of the anecdotal evidence I've heard, um, it, it's not going too well. Um, there, I think that if the issues are going to have to speak if they're going to get Democratic voters. And I'm not just talking about like the baby boomers who always are going to vote. They're, you know, if they're, if they're committed Democrats, they're going to vote. If they're baby boomers and you give them, um, uh, you know, meat and potatoes issues or, you know, uh, what is it, the expression of buttering, you know, um, bread and butter issues. If you give them those bread and butter issues, they're going to turn out and they're going to vote in their favor. They're going to continue to vote. For things like you know, making sure that medic you know Medicare is shored up and Social Security, you know, and their pensions are not going to be touched, and that their home ownership, their mortgage, you know, their mortgages, and they can you, they can their pensions are intact, and that their mortgages and you know um, and their their home equity is in is intact. What is not going to happen is anybody, um, many um, Gen Xers, that would would probably. Encompasses a lot of people of my generation, um, or, um, late, um, late Gen Xers um, that preceded the late baby. I mean, the Gen Xers who came right after the late baby boomers, as as well as early millennials and many Gen Zers. Right now, they're not interested because the thing we want, the thing that they want, is they want to have um, some leeway in how student loans are being handled in this country, which is hurting. Um, which is we are there, what's happening is that the most productive, youngest, most creative members of the American workforce, of our citizenry, it, our futures are being mortgaged in order to take care of many of our old baby boomer um, uncles, aunties, mothers, and also much of the silent generation. Not that they have any, have any problem, they, we, we would have any problem with, you know, everyone deserves a, Good and strong and healthy, um, um, their golden years should be should be dignified. Yeah. What's happening is that there are no there's no dignity for so many people. So you have that, and then you also have black um, indigenous black people and um, and other um, black immigrant groups who have, who are forming a continuous uh, coalition for a, a question of um, of of. Of, of reparations for blacks. And then you have a whole coalition that to some degree resonates with the late, ba the late baby boomers to legalize marijuana federally. So, so well, you have all these issues together. 
And unless those things are on the plate or on the plank for the Democratic Party, there's, we don't care. No one cares how many um, Democratic um, districts um, might, how many districts might swing Democratic or go Republican. It doesn't matter how you draw the map. No one's going to show up because nobody cares. Well, Val, uh, Nicole just said that old people like us uh, <laughs> are dragging down, <laughs> are dragging everybody down. But but on a serious note, uh, you're, you're watching the deal. I'm Ed Clark. That's uh, Nicole McFarland and, and Val Atkinson. But that's, the that's the only demographic that the Democratic Party actually cares about, or at least po um, policy in terms of policy making. But what they, their rhetoric, what they talk about might try to, you know, you know, you know, when they're on the breakfast club or something, or they're trying to reach out to young voters right at the last minute, all of a sudden, you know, they give out all, you know, they start mentioning these things, which are never actually ever, 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 ever translate into real policy. So, so Val, let's talk about brass tacks here. Nicole brings up some good points. So, so you got to continue to keep these people energized. I'll make the argument that you never should have to energize people, that there's always an incentive to vote, whether it's directly about you or not, because the, depending, depending on depending on who is in leadership, not necessarily at the presidential level, but at those state legislatures and at the federal legislative level, Congress, right, are, are, are where things happen. And so you should always be concerned about that regardless. And then whether or not you can make any inroads into some of those issues that Dr. McFarland's talking about, you still got to have people there representing you that, that, are, that are for that. The, 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 re, the stark reality is, is in West Virginia, Joe Manchin is there. And in Arizona, Kirsten Sinema is there. And, and throughout a lot of legislative delegations, Republicans have drawn themselves into majority. How do you, how do you get to those issues that Dr. McFarland is talking about to be able to even do anything about any of them to satisfy those voters that may be sitting on the fence? You're the political scientist. Explain to me how you get those young people to the polls. I think it's very dangerous. Uh, it's filled with uh, problems. Uh, sometimes some people say unsolvable problems. I know it is the, the starting point uh, for every election that runs afoul of, of good voter turnout. And what I mean by that is that young folks look back, some of them, not all of them, and say, what did you do for me last cycle? You know, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. You promised this to get me to the poll, but then it didn't happen, you know? And so we do that to ourselves. We meaning us old folks here. Uh, you, you go out there and you dangle uh, reparations, you, you dangle student loan forgiveness, you dangle all of these wonderful things in front of people to get them to come out to the polls. And then if you don't deliver, you can't go dangle that again the next time. Uh, they're not going to do that. So you, you, you set yourselves up. Where the Republicans or some right-wingers have us at a disadvantage is that the thing that they push is something you don't have to dangle every election cycle. We're talking about things like Western culture, Western civilization, white supremacy, white privilege. You can talk about, you don't have to dangle that. That's what makes them want to get up in the morning. But on our side, we have got to go find something to make these people forget about their pain and to dangle it. It's a nice shiny object 
that come vote, get out and vote, and this is what's going to happen. You're going to have more money in your pocket because your student loan is going to be forgiven. You're going to have more money in your pocket because this, that, and the other, and it ain't working. We've got to have some things that energize these people, uh, self-energizing uh, things that people look at and say, I'm motivated. I'm going to not only get up, I'm going to get my neighbor up, and we're going to go to the polls and vote without Nicole and Val and Ed having to tell them to do so. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, and we'll we'll put a pin in it. I'll, I'll end with you, Dr. McFarlane. So um, we we know that the world revolves around money. Uh, that 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 there is that 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 there is uh, a lot of this is about economics, right? Uh, you know, you you talk about reparations, you talk about uh, student loan forgiveness, and those things are economic pocketbook issues, right? Where, where the bread is buttered. For, for that demographic. Yeah, so yeah, so talk to me about uh, your thoughts on, uh, you know, getting to those people and explaining to them that, you know, bread and butter issues are, are always a part of this discussion. So, so when um, your response was that you do not agree that you have to energize people to vote. Uh, Val, um, you know, as a political scientist, he um, believes his his interest is in determining who gets what and how do we leverage, you know, um, power um, in the electorate in order to bring in, in in the legislature to bring those things into into fruition. But I'm a rhetorician and I am con concerned with how do we persuade people to do things? Mm. How do we persuade and and how, what that is the art of persuasion? How do we sway? How do we move? people to the polls. And so to that, I would have to disagree with you. And I say that you do have to energize people to vote. Yeah. It's not a foregone, wait, let me finish because it is yeah. not a foregone conclusion that you necessarily have to vote in the polls anymore because there's another type of crowdsourcing that's happening when people are, when there are TikTokers that are determining whether or not Trump fills an arena. So they are utilizing their crowdsourcing abilities and organizing themselves outside of the traditional um, um, way of influencing power and power relations. I would also say one more thing that March 7th, well, this year, um, well, instead of doing anything for International Women's Day, which might've had, some, you know, might've been able to talk about issues like reproductive justice, Kamala Harris decided that she, she, she needed to go to the 57th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, Bloody Sunday in Selma again. Yeah, I guess they're gearing up for like the next three years, it's gonna be a, a huge, you know, commemoration on the 60th. But that is not energizing any, unless you just want a free bus ride through Atlanta into Selma, right? Which is what the Democratic Party seems like the only thing they're giving to um, the, the, um, the younger rank and file foot soldiers of the Democratic Party. You will have to persuade people to vote by bringing in issues like eliminating student loans, bringing reproductive justice to the table, for our young childbearing women that are black women and women of color who support this party and they need us for the future. And they're going to have to make sure that, uh, that um, so many host of issues don't merely just cater towards mortgaging our futures to take care of current generations that are, com that are comfortable at this moment. 
Sure. And I, and I don't disagree that you don't have to energize people, you know, uh, uh, over certain issues. But what I will say is that my, my point is, is uh, the larger point is that uh, you don't have power unless you're in power, uh, that, that you can't move uh, the uh, legislature if you're not in the legislature. And I get that. But the clock says and the music says that I got to take a break. So when we come back, we can we can pick up on the subject, end on that, and then, but we need to talk about how world politics is affecting the economics and likely to affect the issues that'll be discussed in the next election cycle. So stay right there, we'll be right back after this message. In Moscow, the election result was also being celebrated. We are pleased that the best candidate has won. Let Grandma Hillary have a rest. We were baffled. In the State Duma, nationalist Vladimir Zirinovsky held a special reception to celebrate Trump's victory. There were reports of people popping champagne corks at the time. I don't know anyone personally, but I heard about it. Well, a love of grandeur is part of the Russian national character. Vladimir Putin was one of the first to congratulate the surprise winner, Donald Trump. Russia wants to completely restore its relationship with the USA. Listen, you're my friend. I noticed you haven't really been yourself recently. Yeah, I feel like something's up. How are you? Are you okay? Is there anything you want to talk about? I just want to know how you're feeling. And listen, even if you don't know what to say, I'm here to talk. No matter what you're going through, I just want you to know I'm here. I've got your back. When you want to talk, I'm here. Welcome back to the deal. Uh, I'm your host, Ed Clark. That's Dr. Nicole McFarlane and Val Atkinson. We had a lively discussion in the first segment. Uh, and uh, I, I do want to I do want to wrap that up I, in, uh, in in uh, we're not going to solve the problem today. But uh, we started out talking about the Supreme Court not hearing any more arguments about the redistricting case in North Carolina and Pennsylvania. Uh, so that means that in both North Carolina and Pennsylvania, the Democrats do have an opportunity. Whether or not they can take advantage of that opportunity and actually win some additional seats and take claw back some of the gains that the Republicans thought they were going to get. Uh, we were talking about what the linchpin to a Democratic victory would be, which is probably going to be Black folks again, right? It, uh, now, if Black, now I, this is a question for you, Dr. McFarlane. If Black folks don't show up, uh, and, and say the Republicans make a game, they win the House, they win the Senate, then nothing gets done. How, how, do, you, how do you explain that to young it's people? Done. 
And I'm going to be honest about that. Okay. Yeah. So getting done. <laughs> so it, there is, it's, you know, it's a really sad thing when, when, you know, thoughtful um, policy, uh, you know, policy driven um, cultural left um, loyal, um, you know, citizens, just people who consistently thoughtfully vote their progressive values down ballot and as well as up ballot, right? When this happens, and then they have to kind of sort of agree with the present previous uh, president when he says, what do you have to lose? And there is a growing number of black and women, black women who really are the future of the party, that's the party, and the president's party who don't even care anymore. And they are not being persuaded. They are not being brought to the table. And I'll give you a case in point. Um, Kamala Harris, last, this year, like she, I mentioned, she spent her day in Bloody Sunday um, in Selma to com commemorate that. She gave a few remarks about equality and it's still in, 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 in really frame and really going, you know, out of her way symbolically to frame civil rights or um, racial equality and even um, Black Lives Matter in terms of a historic episode that has been handled and just now has to be commemorated. Whereas um, you look at what she, on, and, on, and today this year on International Women's Day, she makes a very quick pivot and she deals with, um, she was dealing really talking to American troops and she was shoring up questions you know, with veterans and, and meeting with them and just really supporting, um, supporting um, the efforts of Biden's, um, Biden's, you know, um, trying to stay neutral, no, not neutral, but, you know, trying to stay measured and uh, prudent in this uh, war in Ukraine. But last year on International Women's Day, instead of commemorating, or in last March, instead of commemorating Selma on the 56th anniversary or um, commemorating um, women international, she decided, she did decide to commemorate International Women's Day when she addressed the European Parliament in Romania. Romania is to the southwest of, U of is to the southwest of Ukraine, and it borders Poland, and it op and it opens up the way to all those Balkan states, and that's the problem. She that day she spoke about maternity hospitals. She spoke about women and children. She talked about accountability and trans trans um, transparency and human rights, and she started talking about how women um, we should just really just stop being mean to women, and that because. This is important. And oh yeah, there's those, which she never ever said anything about all the women in Europe who are black women, who are African women, who are Northern Europe, North, um, East, um, who are Northern African women and Western and Southern African and Central African women and East African women. She mentions nothing about their rights whatsoever. And all she does is then, by the way, this year she decides to talk about um, and in five minutes in talking to, um, she has this year, I think she met with um, the Romanian um, prime minister. Was it the Romanian prime minister? Yeah, she was in Romania. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. So last year she was in the parliament, this year she was meeting with him. And this year she um, doesn't ever um, mention anything about until like five minutes, four minutes into a five minute speech, something about, and by the way, um, black people 
Like, you know, and she just kind of just said, yeah. Rachel, it's, it's yeah. just really, it's really, it's really disheartening. Nobody feels like we're being, we don't, we're, we're, there's no care. There's a huge movement for, for, for among black women to indulge in, um, in matters of self-care. And the reason it's happening is because we don't feel like anyone else will. Okay. And so, and so Val. Yeah. Right. So Val, so there, there's a lot on the plate here that Nicole's put on, on the table, but I want to talk, and this is a hard pivot, but uh, Joe Biden uh, was talking just uh, less than 24 hours ago. And I got a clip I want you to look at because this, this makes it doubly difficult to talk about some of the issues Nicole's talking about because the focus of most Americans in Western society is on something else. So let's take a look at that and, uh, and we'll talk about it. Sometime with President Zelensky of Ukraine. I told him as I have each and every time we've spoken, the United States stands with the people of Ukraine and they're bravely, as they bravely fight to defend their country. And they are doing that. And as Putin continues his merciless assault, the United States and our allies and partners continue to work in lockstep to ramp up the economic pressures on Putin and to further isolate Russia in a global stage. Later today, together with other NATO allies in the G7, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, as well as the European Union, we're going to jointly announce several new steps to squeeze Putin and hold him more, even more accountable for his aggression against Ukraine. I want to speak to a few of those points today. First, each of our nations is going to take steps to deny most favored nation status to Russia. Our most favored nation status designation means two countries have agreed to trade with each other under the best possible terms. Low tariffs, few barriers of trade, and the highest possible imports allowed. In the United States, we call this Permanent Normal Trade Relations, PNTR. It's the same thing. Revoking PNTR for Russia is going to make it harder for Russia to do business with the United States. And doing it in unison with other nations to make up half of the global economy will be another crushing blow to the aggression economy that's already suffering very so badly. So back to what everybody's completely focused on right now, uh, all the issues that Nicole talked about are vitally important here in the United States, and it also will uh, determine who runs the House and Senate. But Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as vice president are focused on what Joe Biden was just talking about. And one of, that, one of those things is trade relations with Russia. And the biggest part of that trade relationship is oil. And we know that money moves the world. So talk to me about the geopolitical uh, problems that the president has that will keep him from talking about some of the issues that Nicole was talking about? Well, the whole business of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is number one uh, on everybody's mind, geopolitically speaking, uh, because this could end up in us not having a culture, a civilization, us not having a world. Uh, it's very, very important that this whole piece is settled in a way that there's still human life on planet Earth. Uh, so that's why this takes the air out of the room when you're talking about anything else. This is numero uno. This is it. 
to be discussed. And the tightrope that Joe Biden is trying to walk, he's trying to walk a tightrope to show people who are aggressive and what I call chicken hawks want to go to war uh, against those folks who want a civilization and want homo sapiens to continue on this planet. He's trying to walk a tightrope between those two and at the same time understand there's an election about to happen in November. Uh, uh, and he's concerned that a uh, an advantage in one of those realms may mean a big disadvantage in another. It's a very, very tenuous position to be in, but that's what makes it uh, really uh, difficult to try to focus on any one of those. He can't focus on any one of those uh, at the uh, dismay of the others can't take his mind off of any of those. And as far as the, the voting is concerned and the issues of his party and those kinds of things, uh, he has got to uh, go back to something that you said, Ed. Uh, it's nothing he can do to make things, anything happen if he loses the House and the Senate. I don't care how much he wants anything, he's got a problem not the least of which he's going to be impeached. I can tell you that right now. He's going to be impeached if, if, if the Republicans take back over the House. Uh, I doubt if he'll be convicted, uh, but he's definitely going to be impeached. That'll take up a little bit of his time. And uh, one six goes away. Nothing will happen with that. And nothing happens with some of the things that we had been talking about before, such as student loans and any of those reparational kind of thing, they don't stand a chance if the Republicans control the House of Representatives. Yes. It's not something that uh, the president can do by signing an executive order and having it to stick because the legislature has a role to play. Well, you know, one of the things that's been completely under the radar uh, was that the Republicans, when they announced what their economic plan was, um, if you read the fine print, uh, it, it, it called for the rollback of some additional things that would make it even more difficult. They, they were still talking about rolling back some things that are in the Affordable Care Act. They were talking about rolling back a lot of the tax incentives that were given to uh, lower income people. In, in the bills that uh, the Biden administration has been able to get through, so on and so forth. Uh, when you add the numbers up, Val, it, it, it was something on the order of, you know, a couple of trillion dollars that they claw back and transfer that back to uh, high wage earners getting tax cuts. You know, they're back to, you know, giving tax cuts to high wage earners. So Dr. McFarland, I, I'll ask you this question. I mean, it, again, as a rhetorician, if you if you had to try to explain to somebody why the risk is uh, that you should take a risk that uh, 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 that McConnell becomes the leader of the Senate again and McCarthy becomes the leader of the House and the Republican plan clearly says that they want to claw back all of the uh, tax credits that they gave to lower income people and transfer them to rich people, which is what they did in the other one. How, how, do, you, how do you get them to make that calculation 
rhetorically, what do you, what is the argument to them? Or does that even factor in? Should you, I mean, do you even bother to factor that in? Well, we don't stand a chance if the Republicans are in charge of achieving any of those, those, those ends. But the way the Democratic Party right now is the leadership, it, we don't stand a chance of achieving any of those ends. And I'm not even gonna change the inflection and the tone of my voice when I say it because that is the difference in terms of where the rubber meets the road. We don't stand a chance. And the only way that we can change this is if these incredibly ignored, these critically, incredibly dismissed um, potential electoral powerhouse is, is, can address this and it can ever be um, energized as if we just vote locally, not just vote locally, but run for office locally and change the party from the inside out. How does that happen with Citizens United? Maybe, how does that happen with the redistricting? I don't know. But I think what has to happen is the Democratic leadership has to begin really seeing the vote, the black vote as not something that is just going to be granted because um, this traditional black base goes to the same church as the congressional black caucus member belongs to the same denomination or there, um, or, you know. You know, yeah, it, it Nicole makes a great point because it comes down to a numbers game. I ran some numbers about four years ago, and I think some of them are still good. I wanted to know how many white people in North Carolina would it take to make black voting irrelevant? You got to listen to this. I came up with a number of 68% back during that time. And what I meant by that was that if 68% of white people voted for candidate A, then it didn't matter what the other 32% of white people did, combined with all of non-white people, including blacks and browns and reds and everything else, they could all vote for candidate B and candidate B can't win. So if 68% of white people can decide what is going on, the Democratic Party has understood that they need to get a formula that says, let's keep the white vote tenuous, almost at 50-50, then we could get non-white votes to come in and win. But you got to understand that uh, African-Americans only made up then and still now pretty close to 22% of the population and 20% of the electorate. They make up 20% of the electorate. So 20% where I went to school don't be 80. And, and you cannot... You cannot win an election with 20% of the electorate without help from that other 80%. And that's where we are. We have been gotten accustomed to splitting the white vote and then the black vote becomes critically powerful. We decide how things are gonna happen. 
But if the white vote is not split, that diminishes our power. Yeah. You know. The problem is, and I, I agree with what, like what you're saying, but the problem really comes from that, that phrase, the reds and the browns and the everyone else's, the black vote. But then the reds and the browns and everyone votes. But no one expects them to just automatically vote Democratic. You can't expect only the black and the indigenous black members of that yeah. mythical coalition to just always, always be that small percentage in, the, in, in North Carolina, 20%, nationally, 12%. You can't expect 12% of the population that is always being then um, to save and to, and to, and to um, solidify and to build solidarity um, to save the Democratic Party and then to also build solidarity among the reds and the browns and everyone else. What I'm saying is that Black, Indigenous Black Americans, I'm talking about those um, Black Americans who are multiple generation Black Americans, even many second immigration, second generation um, Blacks such as myself, we are, we are our, our backs are broken now, retired. Uh, we, we just cannot continue to shoulder the, the load of the blacks and the brown, I mean, the browns and the reds and the everyone else's and, and continuing to shoulder the load for 12, uh, the, uh, the entire Democratic Party. The, and when I, when I say our, 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 our backs are weak, I'm talking about the boomers who are dying off because of this terrible COVID. I'm talking about the um, greatest generation and the silent generation um, who um, are you know, you know, going home to their makers. Who is left are the people who cannot keep, we, we might be able to get the Democrats into office, but so far it has proven absolutely futile to get the Democrats to do what they need to do when they're in office. Yeah, I- Than the Republicans in doing things that have I, to happen. I, I yeah, go, go ahead. No, well, what I was going to say is I, I think I think what, what what we've arrived at is that it is a it's probably more of a happenstance of American political uh, uh, norms, right? The two parties is not a rule anywhere. It, it, it's just how we've managed to keep things. We have never been able to manage to squeeze in other parties to to siphon off votes for the Democrats or the Republicans and create a third way. Uh, but before we get too far, I, I, there's one thing that is definitely going to still have an impact. And again, I, I go back to people's pocketbooks. I got a clip I want you guys to look at, and then we're going to talk about it. It's about gas. High gas prices. This is a problem, not just here in the United States, but around the world. The price of gasoline has reached record levels recently in Europe and in Asia. In France, at the end of the last month, it reached about $7 per gallon. In Japan, it's about $5.50 per gallon, the highest it's been in years. Of course, it's always painful when gas prices, gas prices spike. Today, the price of gas in America, on average, is $3.40 a gallon. In California, it's much higher. The impact Instead, is real. We're taking action. The big part of the, of the reason Americans are facing high gas prices is because oil-producing countries and large companies have not ramped up the supply of oil quickly enough to meet the demand. And the smaller supply means higher prices globally, globally for oil. So, so that was actually from November of last year. 
2021, uh, there was already pressure uh, on gas prices because production had been down, largely due to COVID, because nobody was going anywhere. So the oil companies, they need to make profit. So they weren't pulling oil out of the ground, right? So we get to March of 2022, Russia invades Ukraine. Everybody wants to stop buying Russian oil. Production goes down even lower. And now you see a spike in price at the point. I'm going to go to you first, Val. Uh, when people see gas prices go up, they blame the person who's sitting in the White House regardless. They always do. It's always happened. Uh, but uh, again, uh, if you want to communicate effectively, how do you communicate that this is, has been an ongoing problem with oil companies taking profit over actually making the gas price and oil price what it you know re in reality should be? It's not a complete you know, supply-demand kind of question here. Well, Ed, I don't know if I agree with the entire premise here, simply because uh, I think what it is is a matter of Democrats uh, being hit because of their uh, bad messaging stance on not just gas and economics, but with almost everything. Uh, they sound, when you're explaining, you sound, you're on the defensive. Uh, and it, what is going on is that the other side is blaming the Democrats because we're in power uh, for the gas shortage. And we begin to try to explain that away. Well, to the novice, you know, it, you sound guilty. You sound like you are at fault. Uh, and uh, Democrats didn't get ahead of this program. Like you said, this last clip about Biden, that wasn't yesterday. That was some time ago. So we can intellectually make people understand that it's not Joe Biden's fault and those kinds of things, but that ain't what the argument is about. And you're explaining and you sound guilty. And when you're in power, you take blame and you take credit for all kinds of things that you had nothing to do with. So Biden is, is, is being hit and he's gonna take the blame and you need to get the secretary of energy or someone to go out there and get on the loop and try to talk about things. And everybody else needs to be doing something else. Because if you're there on the defensive, trying to explain why Putin is more responsible for your gas going up than Joe Biden, and he's not it, uh, you sound guilty and you're not winning. Yeah, yeah, it, it is sort of an untenable position to be in, but uh, I, I know that we, we need to take one other break uh, before we run out of time. When we come back, I want to I want to come back to the United States. Uh, a, a famed uh, um, director, the guy who directed uh, Black Panther, the movie, was detained at uh, Atlanta Bank of America. I want to talk about that. I want also want to talk about COVID, which Nicole McFarland mentioned. So uh, uh, on the way out, you're going to see a clip about uh, the price of crude oil. And then uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about those other issues and wrap everything up. You're watching the deal.
And welcome back to the deal. This is our third segment. Uh, I'm Ed Clark. That's Dr. Nicole McFarlane and Val Atkinson. We've had a lively discussion today. I mean, we've been trying to uh, put into context um, a lot of the stuff that's going on in the world. I did not want to focus in on Ukraine today specifically. I mean, there's enough coverage about Ukraine. One of the things about that coverage of Ukraine, I think it's, it's, it's really Eurocentric. It, it, it's, it's, it's trying to, I think, diminish what happens all around the world all the time, which there are conflicts going on all the time, and, and we don't cover them the same way. So I'll talk about that at another time, and I don't want to waste any time um, you know, talking about it too much because you can get 24-7 wall-to-wall coverage of Ukraine. Uh, what I do want to talk about, it, I do want to bring us back to the United States and uh, Dr. McFarlane and Val, um, I want to talk about one particular representative. Uh, since we're in North Carolina, we have our own clown. They have Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, she's a clown in Georgia and, <clears throat> and Representative Bulbert from Colorado. But we have our own clown. His name is Madison Cawthorn. I'm going to play a clip and then I, I like to talk about uh, how somebody like this actually gets into Congress and, and, then, and what happens to this guy in the long run. Uh, right now, freshman North Carolina Representative Madison Cawthorn is facing some charges. Well, those charges coming with possible jail time. And Chief Political Correspondent Emma Withrow joins us now. And Emma, Cawthorn broke the law not once but three times recently. Yes, he did, Brian. That's right. Since October 18th, Cawthorn's been pulled over three different times. Two of those were for speeding. And then this last one on March 3rd was for driving with a revoked license. So I reached out to the North Carolina State Highway Patrol, and they said at around 1030 last Thursday night, Cawthorn was pulled over for a left of center violation in Cleveland County. Now, during the traffic stop, the Highway Patrol realized Cawthorn's license was in the process of being revoked. So he was charged with driving with a revoked license. The two prior traffic stops in October and in January were both for speed. Now it's so they can defend themselves better, but remember that Zelensky is a bum. Remember that the Ukrainian government is incredibly corrupt and it is incredibly evil and it has been pushing woke ideologies and it really there's the new woke world. Congressman Madison Cawthorn starts controversy with remarks denouncing Ukraine's president and government. The video was reportedly taken Sunday at an event in Asheville and it's now sweeping across social media. News 13, so, Samir, uh, and FC. That's, that's Madison Cawthorn, representative from North Carolina. I'm going to start with you, Dr. McFarlane, because you, you, you do a lot of discussions about the Internet and the effect of uh, Twitter and those kind of things. He, he, he is essentially a, a representative. He's 24, 25 years old. He's a representative due to his ability to use Twitter and those kind of things effectively. Uh, and he got himself a seat in the United States House of Representatives with no experience. And uh, the last part of that clip that we showed was him talking about Ukraine and saying that Zelensky is a thug or whatever, parroting the Russian line on this. I talked about it a little bit last week, but uh, uh, in Russia, when you talk about Ukraine, you bring up Nazis because there were Nazis in Ukraine. Uh, it, during World War II, you bring up that the, the Ukrainian government was corrupt. But uh, again, Zelensky is supposed to be a replacement for those corrupt people and to say that, you know, going in, it's a, a, a Russian trope that they use. And a lot of right-wing white people in the United States use those that same talking point because they also talk about white supremacy in terms of Russia being the motherland or whatever for, for white people. Long-winded, but back to 
how Cawthorn effectively used Twitter and those kind of things to become a representative. Talk to me about people like Madison Cawthorn. Okay, so I think it's interesting um, the way um, white supremacist tropes and talking points, um, how often they are remixed when they're in social media spaces, um, primarily because the audience that a lot of these like Twitter, Instagram, um, and even um, uh, the, the, you know, more the, some of the right wing like Reddit, they appeal to um, users who um, are largely um, younger digital natives who are engaging in political discourses on the, in these online social media spaces. And, and, the, and the talking points of white, one of the white, um, one of the talking points in a trope, uh, white supremacist tropes that, is, that are often used, and I think it's very interesting because he must have really um, um, got stepped on the toes of someone in the Cleveland County um, Sheriff's Office. They said it was a left of center violation. Now imagine how that term left of center violation is being hashtagged and remixed right now on Twitter to in some way bring some pressure on Hawthorne, right? This young um, um, Pepe the Frog troll really who just, I don't want to use, I almost said he found his legs. I don't want, well, no, no puns intended on the Twitter spaces um, and, and these um, right wing spaces in order to, um, you know, garner the sympathy of um, centrist voters, you know, just, like, oh, that's a, you know, middle of the road left, um, um, like you know, soccer moms, you know, like they just, like, well, I'm going to vote for that guy because I could, I just like the way he's just so clean cut and he doesn't seem like he, you know, he does, he definitely doesn't seem like a white supremacist. Well, maybe he does seem like a white supremacist to some of us, but I think he doesn't seem enough like a white supremacist to others. Yeah. And for that very reason, they're, um, they're incorporating um, and remixing the meaning because remember, like I said, the social media, this online audience, they have sometimes a, I wouldn't even call it an ahistorical view of, of ling linguistic tropes, but with the, the view that they have is it's it's a, um, a casuistic stretching, right, of um, these um, types of words. So when you say a left of center, that does that mean he was driving on the left of center on the road when there was a yellow line? Does that mean, because I've really never seen that kind of violation anywhere on um, any, it seems like that was part of the police report. So why was that? Why was that language used on the police report and then recycled um, and re and referenced on social on 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 um, on the local news stations and then yeah. clipped over and over again on social media? Why? Well, Val, you know Madison Cawthorn, um, uh, regardless of how he got there, uh, he does he does spend a, a a good deal of his time still on social media platforms and those kind of things. I have to admit that I'm a, I, I, I work in technology. I eschew a lot of that stuff. I, I don't I don't get a lot of TikTok. I don't understand any of it. I don't I don't believe that it has much useful purpose other than uh, that some people have found useful purposes for it. Uh, and, and, and so uh, but the right wing has found useful purposes for it. Right, they they have been able to elect Marjorie Taylor Greens and Boberts and Cawthorns and those kind of people. For people in North Carolina, though, let's let's again talk specifically about what could happen here with the redistricting, 
with him, his legal legal troubles, he also has a history of uh, issues with women. Uh, his wife left him recently uh, because uh, apparently there were some domestic issues. Is Cawthorn at any threat of you know not returning to Congress, or can he figure out a way to use his you know social media and all this other stuff to get himself reelected? Well, I haven't uh, looked at his uh, district as it is been lately approved. Uh, and I haven't looked at the numbers in terms of uh, the number of registered uh, Republicans, Democrats, uh, unaffiliates, whatever, in the district that he is going to be running in. Because I think that's going to be the biggest determinant of whether or not he goes back uh, to Congress. And I, I don't think these latest charges are going to have that much impact because there, there are three words that I think his lawyer are, are going to fixate on. And those three words are in the process. They didn't say he was driving on a revoked license. They said that he was driving on a license that was in the process of being revoked. Uh, and uh, so the, the, the legal people are going to really fixate on that. It's going to get mired around in the courts. And somebody is going to say, look, this is not worth a hill of beans. Let's do that. In the meantime, his base is going to fixate on that and say, that's why we need to send him back. Look, that's what they're trying to do to my buddy. <laughs> and uh, it's going to be uh, tough based on how that district that he's in is, is redistricted. And it's, it's already done. I just haven't had access to it yet. But I wouldn't put up a lot of hopes that uh, uh, this traffic situation or negative uh, issues in the, the, in the press is going to unseat Cawthorn. I wouldn't put, I, I, I wish it would. And I'll be on second saying, I wish it would, but I don't think that it will necessarily. But what it will do is it will run him to the right in primary by using language like left of center violation. What happens on these spaces, because as Ed said, it is being heavily weaponized in politics. It will cause his it will cause him to run his primary and his um, policy agenda further to the right in order just to um, just fend off perceptions. It, um, um, ahistorical perceptions, right? Um, a, um, a, a social media hashtag remix version of perceptions, but perceptions that do matter nonetheless in these low, um, low information right wing voters, and it will run his policies to the right. And to that, I would say that we do the problem. Uh, for instance, Ed says that he has no, he has no, he doesn't pay attention to it spaces that he has there's no reason to pay you know there's no use for it see that's the problem that's the problem with the democratic party and wait wait i'm not no, I'm, i'll take this back i'm just i'm not impugning anything you said what i am no, no. saying is that the left has been able to instrumentalize and weaponize cultural politics sure however cultural politics which hawthorne even references in terms of wokeness culture does culture is not politics, right? However, if they do tap into what is actually being said and actually listen to not just giving it lip service as these tropes and these remixed, remixed hashtags only do, 
and actually built policy where you have, you know, the, what's the uh, Simone, uh, Simone, um, Kamala Harris's um, press secretary. I can't remember. I can't remember her last name. But Simone, um, uh, the young, you know, who who basically made her. Used her to name? be with Bernie Sanders. Was Ber Ber yes, yeah, Simone, Simone Sanders. That's her name. Mm -hmm. Simone Sanders. Um, she actually has this. Um, she she has a voice. She she actually as soon as she became um built she um joined the Biden team and started working with Kamala Harris. She literally distanced herself from that particular energized voting base after the vote was gotten out, just to get rid of Trump. But she actively then goes and distances herself. And, the, and that is endemic to the leadership. Because why? Because she wants to be a Democratic Party leadership. And she no longer needs the cultural left wokeness, so-called cancel, so-called cultural left warriors. But it's not the culture, but if we can, instrumentalize and weaponize them just like the right does by using Peppy the Frog hashtags and other types of Trump troll hashtags, it could be used. The Democratic Party doesn't, they, they only use us when they think that they're trying to scare us to death for every four years, but they don't yeah. actually use us to be the real rank and file, file foot soldiers that actually impact and shape policy that actually serves our interests. There's no substance, it is only symbolism. Well, I have a different theory. I, I think it's because uh, people on the left uh, have tend to intellectualize all arguments. And then uh, that the short attention span that's required in social media does not require enough thought. So they have figured out that the quick hit that Cawthorn used the word woke in his comments about Ukraine that have nothing to do with woke in terms of here, but he's he's tied the two together because no, won't eliminate but but no, again no, that's, that, that's that's quick hit. That's a quick hit. But I'm saying Cawthorn and people like that have used that to their advantage, where Val argues, I think, uh, uh all the time that you can't explain stuff to people because. They don't have the attention span to take the explanation, but I don't want to run out of time. So we got one more story that I want to cover, and it's about banking while black. Uh, 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 let's take a look at that clip, and then we'll talk about it. Put your hand behind your back. If I don't, if I don't write down on a note how much I went out. And then I don't want it ran through the money counter right there at the desk. The whole bank ends up looking at me because they just hearing money going through the money through the account. And I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe getting money out like that. So every time I go to withdraw it, you know, I, I put that, I put the amount, the account I want to take and all that. Gotcha. And I put my own card in, and then they, and then they usually take. I mean, I, I always just, just get the, get the money from me. You know what I'm saying? Gotcha. Uh, I, I, I don't. So you you make on. you make well that's like I said that's the reason why we're out here and that's the reason why we detained everybody because we didn't know exactly what was going on. So you make these. I, I, I mean I, I gotta be honest with you, man. Y'all never like y'all never asked me what was going on. So yeah, well, unfortunately, we. So bad. No uh, Ron Coogler, um, claim director, directed Black Panther. Uh, he goes to get twelve thousand dollars out of the bank. He's done it before. He writes on there, you know, please be discreet. He's gone through the whole process. He's given her his ID. 
He's put his card in the thing, put in his PIN number. Everybody in the bank is black. Everybody. Customers, tailors, bank manager, and the police who arrive are black because they're in Atlanta. Uh, but he still is detained and taken out in handcuffs. What's instructive about this, and, and we talk about police nearly every episode here because there's always some police incident, but what's instructive here? What should we take away from what we just saw? Well, I think the biggest thing, if, if, if uh, the director were dressed in a, a Hickey Freeman three-piece $2,500 suit with a tie, close cut haircut, speaking the King's English and all of those other Western value kinds of things. I don't think any of this would have happened, but he, he, he fitted the mode of somebody who is, this guy can't be a successful director. Uh, this guy can't be having a, a, a bank account with 12, that he could just walk up and draw $12,000 out of. This guy represents uh, some of the more shady people. And that's the line that bothers me is that we're way back where we used to be when phenotypically speaking, the first thing that comes into mind when they see you, if you look like this, if you dress like this, if you walk like this, if you quack like that, you must be a duck or whatever. And this is what's happening too many times. And you mentioned the whole issue of everybody being black. Uh, well, we, we have black people who make wrong decisions as well sometimes about who is in front of them or who's doing what to them. And then we have black folks who are following instructions. Uh, if a white officer tells a black officer, arrest him, handcuff him, then it doesn't matter what the black officer thinks. If you want to keep your job, you do this, or, or, you, or you, you may come up on charges or whatever. There's so much uh, uh, what I call indiscriminate second class uh, social and racial issues here in this piece. It, we we could we could write a, a, a short essay about this. Yeah, and 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 I and I'll give you the last word on it, Doctor McFarland. It, when you saw that, did, what what was what went through your mind, and 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 what's instructive to you about it? Well, the first thing I saw was um, I didn't see I didn't I didn't I didn't um, recognize him as Brian Kugler. I would have recognized him because I happen to be um, you know a fan of his work and his. Um, screenplays. Um, uh, he did Fruitvale Station with um, Michael B. Jordan. I don't know if you ever had a chance to see that, but he, he's been around for a while. One thing that's very notable about Ryan Coogler is that he has a Bay, he has very typical Bay Area Black accent, right? Um, he's, um, and he, um, and he, and he also has I wouldn't call it even, I wouldn't classify as a speech impediment, but he does have a bit of a, it's not a stutter, but it's more like a stammer, right? Um, in how he speaks. And so then I started thinking about perhaps like, I do happen to um, have people who I know who are um, hard of hearing or, or have speech impediments. And sometimes they actually do prefer to write things down and speak to the, um, to, uh, to, to the, um, to the teller. Then, but I also thought about this, he was with, Three other friends, right? All of them were black, um, um, black males like him. They were still in the car. The car was still idling. 
And then he went into the bank and he asked them to be discreet. Now that makes sense because also there's a lot of um, Bank of America branches almost all, you know, like they're all over the place in Atlanta. Some of them are in some less than, um, you know, um, shining neighborhoods, let's say, right? So to put it in street terms, this it is wolf season, as they say. Um, right now, you know, gas is a high, people are getting quote unquote jacked, you know, um, all over um, Atlanta, right? Even in right here in Raleigh and Fayetteville, um, it, the, there's an uptick in people's cars being stolen right now. Um, so I can understand why there would be there. Um, the fact that he would need $12,000 in cash. I mean, I don't know what day it was, but you know, there's a lot of things to do with $12,000 in cash when you're a single um, uh, wealthy black male in Atlanta with three of your other wealthy black male friends in Atlanta, which he, he was paying his nurse, but, but oh, that's, that's a whole other that thing. That doesn't but. matter. <laughs> yeah, well, that's all I'm saying. It, you but know, it's his what, money. That's, that's his money. <laughs> what does it matter right. what he's doing with it? But yeah. he can do whatever he wants to do. He can have it in singles or he can have it in denominations of 100s, however he chooses to spend that $12,000 island. And the look, in the look of the neighborhood didn't look like it was one of the more, um, it didn't look like Buckhead, let me just say that. The um air, the uh, bar parking lot didn't look beautiful, um you know um aesthetically speaking. Um, then I would say the last thing because I just have questions basically after seeing this. Why was TMZ so? Why was TMZ the first on the scene? And why did they get? Why did they have all that footage? Well, that's so interesting to me as well. So I don't know what to make of it other than the fact that um Brian Coogler is a master director. And under and he understands narrative, costumes, and how people perceive it. And I wonder what it all means. That's all I'm going to say, and I'm going to leave it. At I, that. I'll leave it at that. Uh, but I will tell you that somebody from the Atlanta Police Department leaked the video. Uh, so uh, I'll leave it at that because it was directly from the cameras uh, off the off the cops. But long, cousin in Atlanta. Yeah, no, long. Atlanta yeah. Hey, long story short, somebody in South Central LA. Yeah, with somebody. In yeah, long story LA. short, uh, it got know. it made the news. Long story short, hey, you know what? We're out of time. So, like I always do, I'll go to you first, Nicole. What, what do we got to look forward to the coming week, or anything you're working on, anything you want to talk about? Um, we are, we have to look forward to um, oh, the bomb cyclone that the media keeps telling us about, which is another interesting um, on the East Coast, a bomb cyclone or, um, or, 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 or what is it? A is it not bomb cyclone or a bomb? Uh, yeah, that's it. That's an interesting term to use. There's a bomb, bomb cyclone alert on the East Coast that everyone is, caught, is being asked to take cover. I hear on the news, why this language? Why now? What is going on? It's all so very, very strange. I look forward to one day figuring out why the media chooses the language that it does to persuade people in these short clips, because guess what? The electoral, we have the electoral we have, that not the electoral that we wish we had. The electoral we have watches these clips and they listen to these sound bites. Yeah, and Val Atkinson, same to you. What we got to look forward to, anything you're working on we need to know about? Well, one of my Divine Nine sister groups, uh, Delta Sigma Theta, is putting on a redistricting educational Zoom conference on uh, the 23rd of this month, details forthcoming. Uh, and they've asked me to serve on the panel. Uh, so I'll be there 
taking questions and giving a little background and history on the redistricting process and where we stand here in North Carolina with the redistricting effort. So as we move forward, I'll be uh, sending out or getting out more information on that so that you can uh, tune in and uh, ask your questions about redistricting. Yeah, yeah, you know, in the coming weeks, uh, my a piece I'm working on right now is it is about uh, perception of black men uh, in light of the Ryan Coogler thing. So uh, go to the website, the deal with airclark.com. Uh, I'll be talking about that. Um, in the meantime, go and read the other pieces that are out there that I've written over time. And then also you can always watch past episodes of the deal with uh, Val Atkinson and uh, sometimes Dr. Nicole McFarland and other guests and so on and so forth. I need for you to go do something though today. Go do something good for somebody and then come back here next Saturday with us on the deal. Have a good Saturday. Bye. <clears throat>